0: Welcome to Raising OKC Kids, Conversations with the Metro Family. We will be releasing a series of select interviews curated from our National Parenting Summit that feature topics especially relevant to you, our podcast listeners. These interviews initially aired in early 2022 when the pandemic was still very top of mind for parents. While that time in our lives will always be a monumental reference point, these interviews and the information they provide stand the test of time. We hope you enjoy. I'm co-host Erin Page with Metro Family, and as a family advocate and mother of three young children, I am learning along with all of our attendees through this summit. I'm excited to learn next from Kathy Kassani-Adams about Zen Parenting and why taking care of our kids starts with taking care of ourselves as parents. Welcome, Kathy. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. I'm glad that you have me here. I'm excited to learn. But first, let's do some introductions. Mm -hmm. Kathy co hosts the Zen Parenting Radio podcast with her husband, Todd. And she is author of the brand new book, Zen Parenting Caring for Ourselves and Our Children in an Unpredictable World. Mm -hmm. Plus, she has a book, Living What You Want Your Kids to Learn The Power of Self Aware Parenting. And that book has won a Nautilus Award a National Indy Excellence Award, and an International Book Award. Kathy is a clinical social worker, certified parent coach, former elementary school educator, and yoga teacher. Kathy teaches in the Sociology Criminology Department at Dominican University, and she lives outside Chicago with her husband and their three teenage daughters. So Kathy, we could all use more Zen parenting in our lives right now, especially after living through this pandemic for the past two years. Mm -hmm. What are the top two or three things you've seen the pandemic most affect in terms of parenting and family life? Well, it's interesting because I think
1: that the number one thing that comes into my head is connection. Um, It's disconnected us. And in some ways it reconnected us and you know it just depends on your circumstance where you live what your you know how many children you have who they are the environment but for many of us the disconnection from our schools from our play groups from our friends has been daunting and i'm and i'm practicing saying has been and continues to be because depending on again depending on where you are you could still be in the throes of it i was just reading recently about so many schools that are still virtual and so, you know, everybody's having their own experience, but this feeling of not having community has been really difficult for families. And then interestingly, paradoxically, sometimes the same family or different families have found that being under the same roof and just having each other has helped them reconnect especially when you have teens who are coming and going and coming and going all the time. And then like, that's what I had. That's what I experienced in 2020, you know, into now is where we were all, we all slowed down and we spent time with each other and there was some sense of reconnection. Now, we didn't want to keep it that way. And everybody knew that we were going to eventually have to continue on, but it really made us reevaluate not just us, but everybody, what's most important? What is it that we want? What is, do we know each other? Are we seeing our lives? Are we choosing well? So in the midst of all this chaos, and it has been chaos, I think connection has been probably the biggest thing. And then, you know, it's interesting because I wrote this book, you know, it's been ongoing for like the last four years. And the subtitle is about unpredictability and uncertainty. And while that has always been the case, it's, life is always unpredictable and uncertain. I can't think of a more you know, obvious example of how we don't have control and how things are unpredictable and uncertain and how we've had to learn and continue to learn how to live within that with a sense of compassion for ourselves and others, and also building a sense of resilience around this. Like we have to keep going. And so I think those, you know, our connection, our dealing with our loss of control, but also just seeing it for the first time, it's really never been there, has been probably the things that, you know, jump out to me the most.
0: Those each resonate so much (laughs) as a mom that um that unpredictability factor has always been challenging for me but even more so and um i've not always been successful but i have Mm -hmm. tried to help model for my kids how you know i want them to see how i am dealing with that um, for the good and the bad Um, so that, that they understand my emotion going through a pandemic and Mm -hmm. hopefully provide them some good life skills as we move forward. Beautiful. So I love this concept that Zen parenting takes into consideration. We have to first take care of ourselves Mm -hmm. as parents before Mm -hmm. we can truly care for our kids. This makes total sense in my head. It's a little Mm -hmm. bit harder for me to put Mm -hmm. into practice. Mm -hmm. Why is this concept at the heart of your podcast, your books, your parenting theology, and how does that help address some of those challenges and parenting shifts you mentioned? Well, it's really the only way. Like, I was just writing something
1: this morning, and I had to, like, write down the fact that I've been a therapist for 23 years, which seems crazy to me. Like, I feel like I've been, you know, sometimes I'm like, oh, the last decade, and I'm like, oh, no, it's been, like, two decades And I feel like that has always been like, everything's changed and evolved, you know, messages, my children have grown, but that's been the one consistent thing is that there's no way to do this well, where we keep our emotional health and our physical health without making ourselves a priority in the midst of parenting. And to your point, people are like, yeah, I know that. I know that. I've heard that a million times. I know that. But there's such a difference between Knowing something, you know, having the the information and putting it into practice. You know, I can't tell you how many clients I've had that come in my office and they'll tell me all about self-care and, and what their big plan is. And then, but there's nothing that they're doing different. They're just talking about how one day it'll happen. And the actual practice of self-care. You know, we have all these great examples, like, you know, you can't pour from an empty cup. Like if you are a glass of water and you are depleted and tired and overwhelmed, then you have nothing to pour or the, you know, the oxygen mask story, you know, like when you get on a plane, they say, put your oxygen mask on first, and then you help your kid. These are really just good analogies to demonstrate. You don't have the ability to parent in a way that I know parents want to. I have met so many parents over the course of my life and every parent wants to do well by their family. They want to support their kid the best they can, but they're tired and they're impatient and they just don't, they don't feel like they have it. So it's this shift into, and I like to call it wisdom. Wisdom is putting something new into practice where you understand something and now you are doing it. And it can be very gentle and small. Even the smallest things shift a dynamic with your family members. If it's just that you're not going to talk so much in a conversation with your kid. And I know people say, how is that self-care? But hear me out, like your child is talking to you and instead of feeling like you have to say the right thing and do the right thing, you just breathe. And you just listen and you look at them and you relax. And instead of taking on the role of mom or dad or parent that has to do everything, you just listen that shifts not only your own body and what's going on in you, but it shifts the conversation with your child. Who's like, Oh, I got to finish. And no one's trying to teach me and lecture at me. Like it shifts everything. And then there's the things away from our children or away from our partners where we actually figure out in in my book, there's, that's basically every chapter, you know, every chakra is about who are you? And what do you like to do? Because if somebody tells you that self care is going for a run every day and you hate running, that's not self care. You have to figure out what you love. Do you love to paint? Do you love just to stare out a window with coffee? Do you love a book club? Do you just love to read fiction? Do you love taking walks? Like, and you have to decide not what society tells you is self care, but what it means to you. And if you incorporate that every day, that and you know, people are like, oh, I want to do it once a week why once a week, like do something you love every day, everybody is deserving. And the thing is, is if you love it, it's not going to be the chore that we look at self-care as being like, if it's really some, if it's listening to music, like lately I've been going to bed and I put in my earphones and I listen to these old playlists of mine that I have, you know, like playlists from college and playlists that I made maybe 10 years ago. I just love listening to my music because you know, like my girls are older now. And I really, Don't mind their music at all. But when your kids are little, you're listening to a lot of music that you wouldn't choose to. You know what I mean? And so, like, to really go back and remember who am I? And that who am I allows us to pay attention to ourselves and then allows us to let our children be who they are. See, this is multifaceted. If we understand ourselves, then we realize that our children are not us and have their own interests. They have their own things that they love and it may not be the same. And the more we understand that, the more compassion we have for them. So this self-care thing is not just about demonstrate to everybody how you're meditating every day. It's about It's about the way you feel, it's about the way you relate. And then it's the gift you give to your kids where they can start to do the same and you let them do that. You allow them to have their own self-care interests.
0: It's so powerful. And I think um, in my family, it it means a lot when my kids can see mom or dad doing something that we love because then just like you're saying, it gives them that permission Mm. and they get to see that modeling of why self-care is important. And so Mm. then they in turn figure out that it's important for their life too.
1: Absolutely. Role modeling. I mean,
0: that's, if
1: we are spun out and burnt out and we have nothing to give and we are, you know, being martyrs and saying, oh, I'm doing this for everybody else. That's what our children learn to do. That's what they, that's what they think life is. So we, you know, it's, it's, it feels daunting because it's like, I just, you know, one of my favorite quotes is children learn by watching how we live, not listening to what we do, you know, say to them and that can feel daunting, but it's also a gift to us. Cause then we can really practice living rather than trying to play
0: the role of parent. Definitely, I love that. So especially as social-emotional learning has become more of a mainstay in our kids' classroom experiences, which has been wonderful, I know, for my kids. Terms like mindfulness, Mm self-awareness, emotional regulation, we're all, as parents, hearing more of those terms. Mm -hmm. These practices are important not just to parents, but they're important to teach our children as well. How do these concepts play into Zen parenting?
1: Well, they're a huge part. I mean, you know, mindfulness, first of all, just so everybody can feel like it's not so esoteric, like mindfulness is just paying attention. That's all it is. It's like really just noticing what's happening right now and why mindfulness is so important, especially to parents, is that if you're paying attention to right now, this moment, then a lot of the stress we feel really dissipates. And, and let me explain. So many calls that I get from parents or so many, you know, talking to parents just randomly are about things like, you know, my kid hit in play school or in preschool the other day and I'm worried that they're gonna become a bully or my kid just got a bad grade or a bad score on a test and I'm worried they're really not, school's gonna be hard for them. Or, you know, my kid it doesn't seem to have a lot of friendships. I'm worried they're gonna grow up and not have friends. That is not being mindful. That is taking something that's happening right this moment and projecting into the future because the opposite of mindfulness is either living in the past or living in the future. And we can't do anything about either place, meaning the past is done and the future hasn't happened. We can only do this moment. So if we can handle these things right now and just stay present with what is, the future takes care of itself. Like it sounds so simple, but it's like, I I, I'm like, I say to parents, like, yes, you have to deal with this if your child is hitting, but you don't have to do it with that sense of dread that your child is becoming somebody that you don't know because that's all made up in your head. So mindfulness is the ability to just be here and pay attention to to what's happening. Meditation is not synonymous with mindfulness. A lot of times we think it is, but really meditation is the practice of being mindful. So you kind of have to think about mindfulness like a, a marathon. And you can't just go out and run a marathon, or at least I can't, I I don't know anybody who really can, you have to train and figure out how your brain works. So you can actually be present and pay attention to what is, because if I say this to people right now, like, just, just pay attention, just be mindful. If you, your whole life have always been focused on the past or future, that's going to be quite a task. Meditation is the ability to sit in quiet. And you don't have to sit in lotus position, you can, but you don't have to, you can sit anywhere you want. And being quiet for a certain period of time, there is no right period of time, there is just a period of time. Some people do 20 minutes twice a day, some people do five minutes a day, some people do two minutes. It's just getting quiet so you can notice how your brain works. What you notice is that your brain will never shut off. So for those of you who are like, well, my brain won't stop thinking. Of course it won't. Just like your heart won't stop beating and your stomach won't stop like, you know, churning up food and doing what it does. They are processing machines. They keep us alive. Our brain will never stop thinking. What meditation is, is noticing that and realizing we don't have to react or respond to everything our brain thinks because our brain is because it's a processing machine it's taking in our past it's noticing future threats and it's just doing that all the time you know and part of that's good right that's why we can go to a door and open it with a doorknob because we know how to do that we've done it from the past and we know that we can do it in the future so it's not a bad thing but it becomes bad or difficult or challenging when we think everything is a threat you know so basically meditation is sitting and noticing our thoughts breathing through them, recognizing we don't have to do anything about it and that we're actually okay. And then taking that knowledge into our everyday experiences. When our kid is yelling at us or frustrated about something that we, we do what we did in meditation. We practice breathing, we calm down and we stay where we are. And so the, that's how those two fit together. And then You know, you just asked about emotional regulation, which is a whole nother, you know, topic, meaning like there's so many avenues. I teach a class at Dominican University here, and we spend like a month on emotions just and I'll just give the headlines. Every emotion is not only okay; they're necessary. So there is no good and bad feeling. Every feeling is okay. So allowing our children to have all their emotional experiences and us, not just our kids, is good. That. Regulation means noticing our feelings and then realizing that we don't have to react, we can actually respond. The difference is reaction is I get angry and I yell at you. Respond is I'm feeling angry, so what am I gonna do? You know, It's a choice versus a reaction. And again, mindfulness and meditation play into this, as you can see. And then some of the new language that I really like, Susan David wrote a book called Emotional Agility. And that language I really like because agility just means moving in and out of emotions. When you wake up in the morning, you are probably going to have 50 different emotional states, and that's fine. And if we can know that and expect that, then we're not so stuck on, oh, my car wouldn't start this morning. The whole day is going to be bad. Everything sucks. World sucks. Instead, it's this moment is a little rough and I need help, but the next hour could bring something Different. You may see, you know, you may feel good. You may laugh. And if we can be agile with our emotions, again, this is all a practice. It's not going to happen overnight. Then life is not so daunting. We don't get so exhausted. We don't have a negative outlook. We we experience things like anger and sadness as normal. And so this is, like I said, these are big concepts, but that's the gist. Like that's the overview.
0: I feel like you have just given me, and I hope all of our attendees permission (laughs) for kind of taking our time and figuring all of these out and how they work in our lives. I am the queen of projection. Like even my six-year-old could tell you that about me. Um, So I love that you have talked through why these require practice. And again, when our kids can see that these are not easy for all of us, that mm-hmm. it does take practice, and that gives them the understanding and the permission to do these things too. I know I have um, an eight year old who is exceptional at grounding. I'm mm-hmm. terrible at it, um, mm-hmm. but he can walk through that process. Um, and, and he even helps me figure mm-hmm. that out when um, we're not regulated, both mm-hmm. of us. Mm-hmm. So thank you. That, that was so, so helpful.
1: Well, and Aaron, just one more thing I want to add, since you said that you can even give yourself another break because our brains are created to look for threats. So you're not, you're, you don't have a problem. It's not like an Erin thing. It's not our kids. The reason our ancestors survived is because they'd recognize threats. And that's why we're here. I always say to my students, you've come from anxious people, like, because the non-anxious people did not survive the big, but is we are, we have evolved to a different state of being. So our brain is still going to have these experiences of threat and we need to incorporate experiences of mindfulness to counterbalance. But it's like, if we just go on autopilot, then we're going to feel threatened. It's just, there's no other way. So it's kind of like, we got to give ourselves some compassion. Like
0: we're not, we're not flawed. We just are human. (laughs) That's what humans do. And that that's the grace and the understanding I think have, all parents especially need right now. So I'm so glad you have walked through that with us. Um, In your new book, Zen Parenting, you focus on parents saying less and listening more Mm -hmm. hard in practice, Mm -hmm. um, but so important. And all of this while extending compassion and caring both to ourselves as parents and to our kids. Mm -hmm. You delve into a lot of really important topics, school pressure, self-care, mental Mm -hmm. health, sexuality, and Mm -hmm. gender how has parenting around these topics changed from when parents today were kids? Mm-hmm. And can you give us a glimpse into some of the most impactful parenting strategies that you share in your new book?
1: Yeah, how has it changed? I feel like everything has changed and I don't feel like it's like new um rules. It's just okay, I'm 50 years old, so generate, you know, Gen X I don't know a lot of parents that were talking to us about sex, at least in a deep way. You know, someone gave me a book and, you know, my parents gave me a book and they were like, you know, ask questions if you need to, but there wasn't a lot of discussion. I know there wasn't a lot of discussion about race, at least not meaningful. I know that we didn't talk about mental wellness. Um, I, you know, like, and that doesn't mean those issues weren't present then, at the same time, this is not an experience of like, let's throw our parents under the bus and they did it wrong. And, you know, that was then. Again, we are supposed to evolve. And, and the thing is, is even if we did everything that we could do for our kids, our kids are going to evolve beyond us and they are going to raise their children differently than we did. That's exactly how it should go. Okay. So with that said, now is a time that we need to talk about these things that are difficult for kids. Why? Because they're inundated with it because they're online 24 seven, because they are seeing things we didn't see because they're being exposed to images. We had to like go search for a magazine, maybe to get one picture of somebody, you know, versus now porn is accessible to everybody like that, even without wanting to look for porn. kind. sometimes kids find porn. And then their mental well-being. The high pace of our society, and that's like an understatement, is so anxiety-provoking for all of us. Like all of us can rate, you know, relate to that feeling of like constantly going. And then the education system. And I'm just gonna like be beyond COVID right now. I'm not gonna talk about the COVID restrictions. Just basically, is the you know there was a documentary that came out. I don't know, maybe like eight years ago called "The Race to Nowhere." And race to nowhere is like the best description of what we do in education. We push our kids, push them, focused on IQ. We focus on testing. We focus on grades. We focus on AP. We focus on an honor, you know, honors class, and we get them through. And we somehow tell them that that's where all their happiness will live. If they can get through, they're going to be happy. And then they're going to have all these things. And then they're going to get into the right college. And I'll tell you, That, you know, and again, just working with kids my whole life and being a college professor myself, these kids do not end up happy when they, you know, end up at a school where they're going to, they're being forced to do the exact same thing and they don't see the end of it. And I work with women who are anywhere between 35 and 55, and they're having the same experience of, I did all the things, but I still feel empty and lonely. So what am I missing here? The point I'm trying to make is this pressure that's on them when really the most important thing for them is their emotional well-being, their mental well-being, like emotional intelligence after you get out of high school and college is the only thing that matters in the workforce. Nobody cares about your rank. Nobody cares about your grade point. No one will ever ask about it. Rarely do they even ask about what college you went to, even if you went to an Ivy. All they want to know is, can you work with people? Will you show up? Are you responsible? Are you kind? Do you know how to manage? Do you know how to talk through things? Do you know how to communicate? That's all that matters. Yet we force our kids into this system. And what? And so what I will say to it is, and again, I'm a, I'm a teacher. My parents are teachers. My aunt was a principal. My niece is a special ed teacher. I am all about teachers. This is not their fault. This is a societal expectation that has been put on them and parents. Like we don't need to look at each other and say whose fault it is. We've all done it. This is where we've gotten. And so as parents, what can we do differently? We cannot. We can look and see the game, that it, it doesn't mean anything, that, that we want our kids to show up to school. And I actually told my kids growing up, you know, school is kind of a game. You have to learn how to play. You have to be there. You have to, you know, You have to ask questions, you have to do all these things, but I never made them think that school or their grades were who they were. They were a much bigger thing, they were, you know, their sense of self, they were connection to others, they were their hobbies, they were their laughter, and school is just a piece of that. And so these are like some distinctions. If we make them as parents, then we make different decisions with our kids. And again, because every kid is different and every community is different, I can't say, oh, here's the different decision we make. It's just little things where when we see this game, we're like, oh, they don't need to do that. We don't push them into things. We don't force them into things. And so all what I'm saying about all these things is these conversations have to happen with our children so they can take care of themselves as they move forward because life continues beyond college you know obviously but sometimes we forget that we're just like just rip it up until you get to college and then you'll be fine no they have to keep going they have to figure out how to live with their own sense of self understanding and if we can start that when they're young and and demonstrate to them through our lives again to your point that we can role model that then our kids will be better able to communicate their needs. They'll be better able to find what to them is happiness. It may not be our path. It may not be marriage. It may not be the job we thought they would do. It may, it may be their own experience of life. And so these issues that you brought up that you know are at the beginning of my book, they're vital now because they're about our survival. They're about how we're going to relate to each other. We are a global We're globally connected. And if there is the pandemic taught us that pretty quickly, that the interconnection between people from across the world and us, we have to talk about what's happening with, with our country. We have to talk about what's happening, you know, across the globe. And these are discussions our kids need to have so they can be allies for each other and for people that they don't know. I mean, it, it gets pretty, you know, I'm a social worker. So this gets pretty like expansive as far as how we care for ourselves and others, but I had, I originally didn't have that part at the beginning of the book of all of those things that we need to discuss, you know, mental wellness, sex education, um, you know, race, you know, inequality. But then I realized there's no way you can do this whole understanding of Zen parenting, unless you've considered these issues and how you incorporate them into your parenting. You're not gonna do it perfect. To your point, again, it's going to be messy. Your children are probably going to disagree with you because they are learning something different. And we are, and I don't mean different from the teachers. I mean, from their peers, like they are more evolved than we are. They have more information. And so to be open to listening, that was your original question to their experience and not imposing our experience that that's the best thing. Like We have dinner and my girls teach me so much. And not just like TikTok stuff. I mean like, here's what's going on with my friends and here's really what's happening in my our community. And I just couldn't be more grateful for their wisdom. So you know, we're all in this together.
0: I love that. And I love how you have brought together um how talking about especially issues that we didn't necessarily have the benefit of Mm-mm. talking through when we were Mm-mm. kids that it's not only a community issue, it's not only teaching our kids how to relate to and talk to other people, but it also serves to help them know how to regulate themselves. Exactly. That's, that's such an important connection. Um, and I have not really considered how that all worked together. So I'm glad, mm-hmm. I'm glad you brought that up because I think that gives us um, even more reason as parents to really start having these kinds of conversations when, when our kids are little or now it's never right. too late. It's never too late. That's the thing is like, you know, I work with a lot of families and they have teenagers
1: and they're like, we just kind of didn't bring up sex ed. And we just, and I'm like, okay, now's a great time because now is when their exposure is so great. And it's not, and again, we could go down a whole sex ed talk, but I'll just say this, first of all, with all of these issues, it's not one conversation. It's open discussion, little pieces at a time, picking up on their cues, stopping when they want to stop. You don't, you don't put a kid in front of you and say, I'm going to talk to you about sex now. You, you give them little bits of information. You ask questions and you make it normal to discuss in your home. And then that's when they know they can come to you.
0: And I will say that I, I already, and granted my kids are young, so they haven't Mm -hmm. hit the teen years. Um, so they are currently more willing to talk to me about just about anything. Great. But, um, when we do have small conversations around these topics, whether it's racism, social injustice, sex, then I absolutely notice that when they have a question or when they see something out in the world. They come back to me or to their dad and they ask, or I hear them talking about it with each other. And I think at the end of the day, like you're saying, that's what we want. We want to create this environment where nothing is off the table, um, including their mental health and well-being, where they feel like they can come to us to talk about whatever it is that they need to talk about. Exactly. That's all we want,
1: right? Open communication. You know, so many parents say to me, you know, when their kid is really in crisis, they'll say, "Oh, I wish they would have come to me." They know I care about them. I know they know I love them, but love, it, of course, our kid, we love our kids, but love is like an action. It's like that you can communicate to me about things that I'm open. That you're not afraid of me. That when you tell me something, I can handle it. Like if if our experience, you know, going back to listening more, if our children come to us with things and we stop them and then lecture then they're not gonna wanna do that much anymore. They're gonna be like, even if it's like not harmful or they're afraid, it's kind of boring. It's kind of like, but if they come to us and say, here's something I learned and here's this, often the, the quote I say to my kids is I'll say, that is awesome, do you want me to just hear or do you want like my feedback? And I say pretty low key, not like, do you want my feedback? You know, It's more like, do you want the experience that I had? And most of the time they're open to that, but sometimes, especially my youngest daughter, she's like, no, I just wanted to tell you. I was like, okay. End of conversation. Um, that's learning communication skills too. So it's like, there's a lot of things going on there.
0: I love that. I love asking them, what do you yeah. need from me? Yeah. And I am terrible about that. So mm-hmm. I would be the first to say that that's an area that I've got to work on. Um, I, I do get accused by my kids of being the lecturer. So yep. I'm, I'm totally gonna work that into yeah. our conversations. That That's so important. So the next piece of this is our kids gaining independence. Yes. And this is challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, they, Of course, they they have, to, they have to learn independence because they have mm-hmm. to be able to function mm-hmm. in the world. But for us as parents, especially when we're like in the heat of the moment and our toddler wants to pour themselves a glass of milk, mm-hmm. it's easier if we just do it for them or Mm -hmm. our teenagers trying out some new hair or clothing styles that we're kind of unsure about. Um, This is hard for us as parents to walk through. Mm -hmm. How can we be more aware of and open to our kids speaking up for themselves, negotiating their own needs and boundaries? Um, And Why is this so important to raising healthy individuals today?
1: Yeah, you know, something that's, that's, common necessary, I should say for all humans is that we do what's called individuate, where we realize that we are not the, you know, when we're really little, this happens when we're like two or three years old, when we realize we are not an extension of our mother or father, we are actually our own self. And we say things like, I'll do it myself and no, and I do it. And it's our way of separating a natural necessary separation, which is to say, I am an individual and I want to do these things myself. To your question, sometimes we're in a hurry and sometimes we need to get to school or we need to get to where we need to go. And it's okay occasionally to say, you are right. This is your coat, but today I'm going to zip it only because we have to get there on time. But today, when you get home, I want you to show me how you can zip it up and down. Like You can have both. It's not a lot of times in parenting. We think I either have to do it all this way, or I'm messing it up. There are times we got to learn, you know, again, agility, right? We have to teach our kids that we honor that they want to zip their coat or pour their milk. We honor it because they need it. And we did too. But right this second, when we're all trying to get out the door, I'm going to help you just a little bit. But when you get home dinner tonight, it is all you, you know, like, just respecting that space for them because individuation is going to happen no matter what so it's either going to happen with our understanding our uh, our appreciation of child development or it's going to happen with us trying to like keep that door closed and say no i'm in charge and they're going to have to do more rebelling you know it's interesting cuz there's a lot of people who really think if you become a teenager you are just gonna rebel, you're gonna hate your parents and that's the way it has to go. While being a teenager does mean your individuation is gonna go on hyperdrive, you don't have to hate your parents in that process. Like you do need to maybe spend less time with them and do your own thing. But if your parents can actually understand what's happening and, and appreciate that it's supposed to be happening, your parent can be one of your greatest allies. Your parent can be someone that you still come to there's, they're still going to get annoyed at you and you, you become uncool and all that kind of stuff. Like my girls think that, you know, I, I just used to think I was so like, as far as pop culture, I even have another podcast called pop culturing. I just feel so wise to that stuff. My kids like, are like, no mom, you just, you know, I just never will be as cool as them. And I don't even try. Right. Well, I do sometimes, but not that much anymore. But my point is, is that that's supposed to happen. They're supposed to kind of, because they have to learn how to separate from us. If they're constantly in love with us, the way that they, you know, when they're eight and they like want to be on our lap all the time, it's going to be very hard. Like it's a natural progression, but we can stay their allies and their support system. And we can evolve into a more peer relationship. Like I have an 18 year old now she's at college and my experience with her, I'm still her mom. She still calls me for help. I still take her shopping at Target, all that stuff. But She's an adult. Like our conversations are not me telling her what to do. My conversations are, "How did you do that?" And oh, that was difficult. And how did you say that? And how did you choose? Like, I'm not choosing for her anymore. So if we try and hold too tight, you know, this can happen too, where our kids, they have failure to thrive. Like they don't know how to like go out on their own and try something new because their whole life they've been like, "Well, Mom and Dad tell me what to do." Or I have followed the pattern that mom and dad told me to to follow. And now I don't know what I want, you know? And so this practice of like, even things like when they're teenagers, like clothes and hair, like we really have to investigate what is our problem with that? Like if our kid really wants like red streaks in their hair, is that a problem? Like, and I'm and I'm asking it for every parent, like, and if it is, like, if you're like, it is, why? What is the fear you have that you will lose control? That other people will perceive your parenting as poor? That your kid will regret it. Could be, you know, as simple as that. But to really, this again goes back to we have to look at ourselves. Like a lot of times we make our kids stay in sports or don't let them cut their hair or we tell them what to wear because we want to look a certain way in other people's eyes. We would like to be perceived as a parent who is, you know, raising a kid who's kind and nice and does all these things. We all want that. That's human. But we are trading our needs or the societal expectations for what our kid may really need right then. And what they may really need is to try something out of the box and figure out who they are. Because what they're dealing with in their teenage years and even before that are big things, gender, sexuality, style, taste, um, sense of self, identifying, like, these are huge things. And if our kids are like, I need to try this or that to figure this out, the more we can support them. In a, and again, there are boundaries around this. You know, if they're like, I need to go drive a car hundred miles per hour to see if I can do that. No, you know, you know, or if they're like, you know, I actually, one of my daughters actually asked me a few years ago, she was considering um, shaving her hair. Like she was just playing with all these ideas. And I had to, I took a moment with her because I've always been very like, be yourself, you know? But I was like, you know, you might want to rethink that one and you, you could do it. Like, if that's something you really wanted, but that's a big step. Like maybe move to a pixie and like, I gave her some like structure around it. She didn't end up doing it. It was just something she was throwing out there, you know, but I did say, you know, that's kind of a big step. And again, you know, when she's an adult, that's something she may want to do. You guys, everybody's probably noticing when kids get older, they're getting tattoos, You know, really quickly. And these are things that if we can understand why, and instead of trying to control and make them think like we do as full grown adults and be like, why would you want that? Why would you do that? You've got to look through their eyes, like stand in their shoes and be like, you know, what did I need when I was 16? That's sometimes I go back to my clients and say, if you could be 15 again or eight, what would have been helpful to you? And take that into consideration because it, you know, it's not that our kids then get to do whatever they want. They get away with everything. It's not about being permissive, but it's about being understanding that, you know, it's about being compassionate toward their experience rather than how could you do that? Or why would you want that? That just feels like shame. That just feels like they're like, well, I don't know, but that's what I want. And then we're like putting shame on top of that instead of just processing through it, because like my daughter wanting to shave her hair, sometimes they don't really want to, but they want to talk about it. They want to, they want to investigate it. And if they can do that with you, that's a pretty safe place. So that's what I'd say to that.
0: That's so, so helpful. Um, And I, I just love the idea of our kids being able to, to take some risks while they're in a safe environment with us.
1: Yes. When we're there, we're when the risk, because risk is that we're using that word for a reason. It doesn't always work out. They sometimes fail or are ridiculed or have a really negative experience with the risk they took. And for them to be able to come home to a place where they are seen and loved and listened to and to be able to manage that failure, not override that failure. We, you know, we got to embrace our failures and realize that talk about being emotionally agile. We have to figure out how to be resilient and get through it. But to do that in a place where they feel safe, there's, there could be no other better gift for them as they grow into adults. I Love that. Okay,
0: Kathy, as we close out our conversation today, what is your top tip for how our attendees can put Zen parenting into practice in our homes starting today.
1: Oh, gosh. Okay. So let's see. The word that comes to me when you say that is curiosity. Um, Only because it's going to be so different depending on who you are, how old your kids are, where you live. But if you can be curious instead of assume that you know how things should go, it makes parenting a little less daunting. What I mean by that is instead of assuming that your kids should have a certain trajectory or that they should learn a certain way or be interested in something that you were interested in or that the rest of the school seems to be interested in, what if you were just instead curious about their experience instead of believing that there was a right way? And with you too, like, what if we as parents were like, okay, this is how I'm going to parent, you know, I love when parents tell me their philosophies. They're like, this is how we do it in our house. And I'm like, that's great. Like boundary setting is great. But you gotta be a little open to that things might change. Like how many of us before we had kids said, I'm going to take my kid everywhere and I'm not going to care about naps and it's, we're going to be in charge of our day. Okay. Like, we all failed there, right? If we're calling that a success or failure, like when you have children, it isn't about us anymore. We're still important in the process, but we realize that when a kid needs to nap, they need to nap and we don't get to go to live concerts until midnight anymore. Like there is a shift that happens and it's the same thing as our kids are growing up. We may have assumptions. Like one of my good friends, her daughter played soccer her whole life and her actually, her husband was a soccer uh, coach. And she played, you know, soccer her whole life. And then her junior year, she came to my friend and said, I don't think I want to play anymore. And again, you can only imagine, you know, my friend was like, oh my God, like, I thought this was your thing. And then we'd have senior night and then maybe you'd go to college and play. And she really had to be like, wow, this is a huge shift. But her daughter knew I'm done. I'm done. I want to do different things. I, I have different things I want to do while I'm still in high school. And she, you know, my friend backed up and said, do what's best for you and her daughter had an amazing experiences. now done with college as a nurse. Like she had a totally different trajectory that she wanted to follow. And if we can be curious rather than hold on too tight, it makes things a little more, you know, you get an image in your mind, right? When something, when we let, when we're like this, it's so much energy. And when we're kind of like, I'm going to hold it, but kind of loosely and just allow my kid to tell me who they are rather than me assuming who they should be. There's such a difference in that understanding because they are not yours. They came through us. You know, this is a Gibran quote, but, you know, like our kids are not ours. They don't belong to us. They came through us, but they are not of us. They are their own people. And if we can understand that and be curious about who they are and be curious about who we're becoming, we're still humans. I'm still growing. I'm still figuring things out. I'm not done. There is no end point. And if we can just continue to be curious, I think we can actually enjoy this parenting experience. You know, people don't use that word very much. It's daunting and heartbreaking. And it's, you know, I I haven't cried so many tears in, you know, in 18 years, like having kids, like I am like a whole different person, but it's also been pretty amazing. Like I am a whole different person. You know, it's like a they can drive you crazy or make you feel overwhelmed or take away your freedom. But then they also, I just read this, this is not mine, but they also show you your soul. They demonstrate to you who you are and you don't show up the way you want to all the time, but you go back and you try again. And that's soul work. You know, that's a, that's a different level of living. So curious is my word, Aaron. That's
0: what I would say. I love that. Thank you so much for joining us today. Kathy this has been such a refreshing conversation. Um I will say for me personally this is exactly what I needed. Right now in my parenting journey, um, I feel recharged to go forward and be curious Mm. and and work on some of these practices in my home. So I really appreciate your time, Kathy. Well, thank you. And thank you for asking me to be here. I really appreciate it. And to your community, thank you
1: for listening. And just I'm glad we've connected, Erin. This is wonderful. Thank you.
0: This has been so great. For our attendees, you can connect with Kathy and learn more about Zen Parenting at zenparentingradio.com. And you can find Zen Parenting on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in.